My name is Christian Ashley, a seminary student and servant of God, and you are listening to the Let Nothing Move You podcast, a proud Anazal Ministries podcast. Welcome back, everyone, to the latest episode of the Let Nothing Move You podcast. I'm your host, Christian Ashley. I have just returned from a trip in Chicago to see my brand new niece. I can finally say it on air. Uh, Maylin Hart Ashley. Maylin comes from my sister-in-law. Her mother's uh, maiden name, Hart, comes from Reinhardt, which is my mother's maiden name. And I, of course, being the nicknamer that I am, have dubbed her Mayday. Uh, I am in love all over again. This precious, tiny uh, sleeping all the time, little girl is my everything right now. I'm like waiting every day to see pictures, to see video, and just to like let everyone know, like, hey, uh, your boy's an uncle, and this is the sweetest, most precious thing in the world to me right now. And I love her so much. I, I could gush about Malin all day long, but <laughs> that's not the the purpose of this show. So I did, well, every now and then I would like to give updates about my life and stuff like that. And that's definitely something like I have been waiting for months to hold this precious baby and not share her with anyone. I had to relearn my lesson that it is uh, okay to share. It is okay for other people to hold this child because, you know, there are grandparents involved right now. My sister was there. The, her actual parents were there. So out of love to them, and I wasn't always the best at this, I had to give up what I wanted, which is like uh, Christian and Malin time, you know, the fun uncle and he's estate with his precious niece, and instead let them have her. Gosh, that was so much fun. Uh I'm already, I'm, I'm having withdrawals. So like, I'm looking forward to the next time I get to see her as she keeps growing, uh, as we're moving on with all this. So thank you for letting me gush for a bit, guys. I, I could not be happier right now. Uh, so ignoring all of that, <laughs> let's get into the, the meat of the discussion today because we're going, we went through Luke 19 last time. We'll be going through Luke 20 today through the entirety of that chapter. We'll be starting in verses 1 through 8. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Mm. So we start off here, like for once in their lives, the Pharisees are actually boldly like demanding to know who gave Jesus the authority to do what he did. That is a very uh, good question to ask. Like they are in the right to ask this question. Their hearts, on the other hand, are a different matter. But like if this were happening today, we had no knowledge of who Jesus was. This has never happened before. This should be the question we ask. Who does your who gives you your authority? But is it God? Is it someone else? Are you just saying that you do? That's a perfectly good question to ask. Look, even in the midst of their pride and fear, they thought they could solve their problems by confronting Jesus rather than ignoring him which is good as well, to an extent. Once again, their hearts were in the wrong place. But the idea, the general idea is a good one. Like I said, there's something to be learned here from their bad intentions. 
people look at uh, someone does something bad all the time to go, well, I'm not learning from that. They did a bad thing. But yeah, sure. You can say that if you just shut your mind to logic and reality, like, look, there are things we can do. We can learn from going to people who have done bad things and saying, okay, this is what they did, but what can I do differently using some of their methods? Because the methods themselves aren't inherently a bad thing. It is good for the Pharisees to question. It is bad for them to do that questioning because they are prideful and fearful and don't want to lose their authority. So we should follow part of their example here. Continue to ask where Jesus's authority comes from, because if it isn't from God, then they aren't worth talking to, whoever this person is. And they should be ostracized for willingly leading people astray from the truth. Pharisees, unfortunately, they only went halfway with this. They, they knew that Jesus, being who he said he was, meant their power and authority would be theirs no more. And they couldn't allow that reality to happen. Well, let's look at Jesus's response here. Uh, a far better response, uh, which is typically what happens when Jesus opens his mouth. He cleverly answers their question with a question. I will say this isn't always the best debating strategy, but here it's employed flawlessly. Sometimes people will ask questions to avoid answering the original question because they know they can't answer it well. Jesus, however, can do this and in the midst of all this, chooses not to because the Pharisees don't deserve the answer because their lack of a true response to his questions means they don't deserve that answer. They're not ready for it or they wouldn't believe it. So it really doesn't matter what he says right here and now because he can't change their minds. He's not going to, they're not going to see that puff of, you know, a sudden logic and go, wait, oh, everything I believed in is a lie. I have to change my ways <laughs> because they're not going to. They're too stuck in it. They're too demanding of what they desire from the world and not what God desires. The root cause of their questions is that same desire to rule and be seen as righteous. Jesus, being who he said he was, challenged this idea. And furthermore, he had been baptized by John the Baptist. Some of them also may have been baptized by him as well, depending on how you look at the original records. So if they acknowledge John's baptisms from God then they were telling Jesus that his baptism was invalid and the opposite is just as true. So the people would openly rebel against them because they liked John and what he had to say. People were coming to true faith in God. They were being changed. They're showing something far beyond what they had before. And if they say, oh, John was just a guy, <laughs> just saying some crazy kooky stuff, then uh, they're going to have a full-on rebellion on their hands, and they don't want that. So instead, they don't learn from any of their lessons, and they just take the coward's way out and say that they don't know. And sometimes it's good to say you don't know. I am all in favor of saying you don't know if you legitimately don't know the answer to something, but they do. It's so obvious that they do, and Jesus, knowing their hearts, dismisses them rightfully for not desiring a true conversation with him. They're coming to the conversation with false intentions, with false ideas of what, what should be said and done. And Jesus has no time for that. So he get thee behind me, Satan, essentially is what he says. Next up, in verses 9 through 18. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. 
When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed them. Excuse me, killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Mm. <laughs> this right here, <laughs> I just can't help but laugh. This is one of the least subtle parables that Jesus ever offers in his ministry. It is so on the nose. Like, it's incredibly funny. Uh, it, he's, he's pulling no punches now. Like He's about to die. That's kind of like how I imagine as I, I get myself when I get closer to old age, even though I'm only in my 30s. It just feels I've always been an old soul, as everyone would like to say. And like uh, my filter kind of dies over time. This is how I think I'm, <laughs> I might end up like you fools. Here's this very story surface level. Any baby could figure out this is about you. <laughs> and, and no doubt because of this, they were seething with rage as they slowly realized who the target of his warnings were against that, of course, being them. Like the history of Israel and Judah as nations was marred by their refusal over that whole time to ever fully accept the words of God's prophets and priests who did everything in their power to have the people repent of their sins and turn back to God. Time and time again, God's chosen people were harassed, beaten and murdered and plenty of other terrible things done to them because they spoke the truth that the people did not want to hear. So this time around, God sent his son Jesus to speak to the people for surely they would have more respect for a member of the family rather than a servant. Like, okay, yeah, it's still not good, but like, okay, I, I get it. It's not someone directly involved with me. So let me send my son. Like, you have to respect him, right? I mean, it's my vineyard. It's my country that I raised you up out of nothing from, right? And yet, these same people despise the son and will kill him in the coming days. And God will punish those who didn't heed the son's warnings and cut them off. Something which was especially highly offensive to the one people group that God had selected from all the world to be his children set apart from the others. Yet this did not guarantee them salvation. And rightly so. Would you have liked these people to end up with us in paradise? Uh, their only prerequisite for getting in is that they were born a certain way. Is that how God views things? Is that, oh, well, if you're this, you're golden? I know. It takes a relationship. It takes us breaking down and realizing who we used to be and no longer want to be, and then repenting of that so that we can have that true relationship with God. The Pharisees, uh, these Pharisees especially, because there are some along the way who will come to faith, especially if you look in John, Nicodemus seems he's really on his way there, but they're never going to be part of the fold simply because they were born a certain way. That's not how God views people. It's not your birthright that matters. It's your heart. 
and where it's at. So we see the Jewish people because of this, like get upset and like, let's not get angry at them. That's a perfectly natural reaction. If your entire life, you have been told that you are special and set apart because guess what? Objectively speaking, that is true, but not in the way they thought it was. Like out of all the nations in the world, God selected them and made them a mighty nation, made them a people, protected them, loved them, gave them blessing upon blessing. And yet look at how it ended up. Time and time again, rebellion. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. It doesn't matter that it was them. Any other people group in the world, God could have selected them. The exact same things would have happened. Names would have been different. Locations would have been different. The exact same things would have happened. However, in the midst of all this, it did not mean that since they were objectively, you know, special and set apart, like God had definitely done, it did not mean they could live their lives as they pleased and not serve and love God as he deserved. God is not like one of those people that say, oh, well, uh, you're this really rebellious son, but I'm writing you in the will anyways. Here you go. Here's all this money. And here's salvation. That's not how it works. God knows what that person is going to do with that. They don't deserve it. Well, none of us deserve it in the end. But those of us who repent have been brought into the fold. But these people definitely don't. If no one deserves it, like these are the worst of the worst. Anyone who thinks they're better than someone simply because of how they were born and raised. Not good for the gospel. Jesus' declaration that the owner of the vineyard will give it to others is a prophecy. And it's uh, speaking of how the Gentiles will come to faith as well and how his true children will be both Jew and Gentile. And thank God for that, because <laughs> wouldn't have been able to make the cut if it was any different. And we also see this verse that Jesus quotes from is from Psalm uh, 118. And it's meant to be this song. It's like praising God's enduring love. Uh, I can't remember if it's a Temple Ascent song. I want to say it is. It's like uh, one of the songs that people would sing on their way to the temple. Maybe it's just at a cutoff date for that. I have, I'd have to look it up again. And... It's, it's supposed to be this really inspiring song. God's enduring love has, has watched over us and kept us protected. But there's this weird couple of verses in there. And obviously they didn't have the verse structure that we do, but they would have known the sentence structure. And Jesus quotes us about the cornerstone now, how it's rejected. And people don't use it the way it's intended to be. And that's him. This is a major criticism in that psalm speaking against those who would dare not follow God or God's son, who he builds his church on this world from as the cornerstone. Jesus makes it perfectly clear here that anyone who rejects him as the cornerstone will not be his and will receive his due punishment for it, for eternity. There's no get out of hell free card there. It's you reject him outright, game over. Uh, like I said before, probably not the place for universalism talk. I'd really like it if that weren't true but there's got to be punishment for sin. And that's where we're at here. Uh, 19 through 26. The scribes and the chief priests brought salt to lay their hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. See, see, they understood the story. Good for them. They've got some reading comprehension or speaking comprehension, I should say. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. 
He said to them, then render to Caesar, Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Let's start with the beginning here. Look at how these lackeys, these flunkies, attempt to butter Jesus up by saying things they themselves don't believe. What they are saying is objectively true, but their method of saying it is false because they don't believe in what they're saying. Look, there are plenty of worthless uh, toadies and sycophants out there who speak evil into the world, but don't forget that these fools have people above them who believe the same things and pretend not to by having their underlings spread discord and lies on their behalf. Both of these are reprehensible actions, but the leaders add on to their lies and hypocrisies by hiding and being cowards behind the voices of others while they practice the same things in the shadows. The Pharisees were simply adding on to their long list of transgressions against God by doing this. Learn from their example and avoid this line of thinking at all costs. Don't hide your opinions and beliefs behind others just for personal safety. Own up to what you believe and correct what needs to be corrected when this correction, this need for a correction is revealed to you. They failed the test. Be better than them. And I say that to you and I say that to me. Also, we see here yet another hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They saw themselves as the ultimate authority on God and they were outraged when Jesus was exposing their weaknesses and taking their followers away from them. Oh no, poor Pharisees. Yet, at the same time they despised Jesus's leadership and his desire to take control away from them as he rightly should, they remained under the subjugation of the Roman Empire, who they likewise hated, but didn't act against because Rome allowed them to stay in power. Now, how does that work out? Oh, oh, it's serving my self-interest then. Uh, well, I don't want to be under Rome's regime, but I mean, pff, things are pretty good for me. Like, you ever hear anyone like that? What they do, what they say, as long as it doesn't personally affect me, then I'm not going to speak up for a cause. That's awful. It's terrible. It's hypocritical to like not love someone and not change who you are simply because you're benefiting from something like they were. And let's look. Uh, this this blatant hypocrisy is precisely what Jesus fights against when confronted confronted about the question of paying taxes to an occupier. Like, look, we can we can argue geopolitics about colonialism and the like all day long, and that's fine. But what Jesus was focused on at this moment in time was were the Pharisees and Sadducees benefiting from the same system they claimed to hate. That innate hypocrisy is something he cannot stand because if they were truly righteous, they would have they would have worked with Rome. I mean, that's what they should have done, but they should have also been calling the Romans out for their evil and sin. They should have also been leading the people correctly and not taking things that weren't theirs and not uh, attempting to look more righteous than others. Jesus despises this, and he calls them out in this sense. He also redirects their question with logic, showing in this moment that, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. Well, who's the last one spoken there? Oh, God, who's more important than Caesar? This shows that God allows men to conquer men for a time, and this should be respected to an extent. 
to an extent. We'll get there later on. We'll get the Romans. But ultimately, despite what men do to one another, God deserves the higher praise and accolades for being the one who deserves far more than any human ever could. Yes, right here in this moment. This is also a passage (laughs) about respecting one's own government and paying taxes. Like that is what Jesus is saying. It is part of his point. It is not the main point, but it would be very disrespectful of me to not mention it at all. But I've seen way too many people make this the main point and forgetting what Jesus is actually primarily saying here about the Pharisees and their hypocrisies and the hypocrisies of anyone who does the same. So, yes, uh, one to respect one's own government and pay taxes. Okay, but don't let anyone say anything otherwise. But it is not the main focus of his thoughts. Don't let anyone else redirect the purpose of what he says to attempt to build up a smaller point as if it was the most important. It needs to be said because that is also what Jesus is saying. Focus on the bigger point first, the better point first. 27 through 40. There came to him some Sadducees, those who denied that there is a resurrection, and asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Now, Uh, This was surprising to me as I was doing my research. This is the first time the Sadducees are mentioned in the entire Gospel of Luke. I was like, that's not true. (laughs) Well, it turns out people are writing commentaries no more than me. Uh, This is the first time they're mentioned. Now, uh, they are a group set apart from the Pharisees. They both kind of – they're more uh, more noble in rank. Uh, They perform some priestly duties. They, as a group, did not believe in anything outside of the Pentateuch, that being Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These five books were the only scripture they took seriously. It's not like they, not all of them totally disregarded everything else that came after, but this is like the actual, in their minds, the Bible in that sense. And one thing they also didn't believe was in the power of resurrection. And this belief was, this disbelief was a common heresy in the first century. Uh, Why? Because, I don't know, maybe people didn't want to come back. Maybe they were just that bitter and broken. They couldn't imagine God ever bringing them back, which is probably why. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy there. Like It's also a disbelief that shouldn't be shared by any modern thinker either. If there is no resurrection of Jesus and his resurrection of us at the end of days, then we are wasting our time. Sure, you could say, oh, we'll just end up in heaven. But like, no, if there is no resurrection, but Jesus didn't have the power to do what he said. He couldn't bring us back in it because he's still dead. <laughs> don't, don't you see that? He just came on the earth to die. But if there is a resurrection, then our resurrection later on is possible because he did what he said he did. And the Sadducees don't believe in this. Let's look at their actual question here. 
what they're asking, it's based off of Old Testament law uh, about how if a brother died, his wife was to be married to the next brother in line. And she would be, this was a sense, an idea to help keep her protected and have a guaranteed home that that way she wouldn't be a widow and be on the streets. Like there was a guaranteed in the law way to protect people in the family. If you got married in, if anyone disrespected this, they were scum of the earth because this was meant for your good. And to deny that would be a base sin. So everyone in this audience would have known like, oh, this is a good thing done. Like we look at it now, let's go, wait, what? How does that work? Like, well, back in the day, they don't have the same structures we kind of do. And really, at the end of the day, I mean, can we argue that what we have in place right now is just as good? I'd argue no. I have yet to see a perfect system for widows to be taken care of at any rate outside of Scripture. So there we are. The point of their questions was to show that all seven brothers by the law, had an equal claim to her as wife because not a single one of them had had a child. So if they're all resurrected, well, whose husband is she supposed to be? Now, the, the absurdity of having a scenario where this poor, uh, hopefully not a black widow, just goes at the brother, 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 how, how many brothers there are, seven, and they all die and there's no child. Well, like the absurdity of the situation was done on purpose because they saw the idea of resurrection as absurd so they offered an equally like in their own point of view absurd scenario to lambast it if jesus said that she was equally wife of all seven at the resurrection it made no sense to the audiences at the time because the woman was only supposed to be with one man so if jesus answers like in any way that kind of disregards that they can kind of disregard him or if he's affirming of something they can also disregard him because in their minds this is absurd and he shouldn't be able to do that so what does jesus do well he offers them information they couldn't have known of because i'm fairly certain this is like the first time this shows up in scripture uh correct me please if you want to let nothing move you podcast at gmail.com this this fact this information is that marriage is meant to last during this lifetime and isn't the same in eternity that i know a lot of people are really upset at that and i get guarantee I know why, like marriage is a very beautiful thing done correctly. I have had a very uh, wonderful life being under the stewardship of both my father and mother. I wouldn't trade them for anything. That Their marriage is something that hasn't never been perfect. But at the end of the day, I know they love each other and they respect one another and they listen to each other. And that's what I desire one day, hopefully. I mean, unless I'm called to singleness for the rest of my life, I couldn't tell you. But like that idea that that marriage is a wonderful thing. Like we should all strive if we are called to be married for something like that, something holy and perfect to love someone else who is so different than you, has no relation to you outside of this shared love for one another and build a life based on that. And yet Jesus is saying, and a lot of scholars, and I would agree with them, would say that that does not exist in the same way once we reach glory, once we attain, uh, get to heaven, ascend, and we're done, we're good because it wouldn't serve the same purposes anymore as it does here. It's not as if Jesus is saying that men and women uh, will no longer see each other as spouses and friends after the resurrection. But what he is saying is that there will be no need for those same things we see now on earth in marriage 
as we will when we're with each other in heaven. The main focus at that point will be for all of God's children at that time uh, for eternity, just to be celebrating his glory and power and our shared time that we have together as a new family for all eternity. We are changing the game book at that point in time, because it's something that doesn't exist here. A full amount of unity of people from all across time and space and to hang out with one another and catch up with one another. Marriage, in the same sense, we are married to Christ to that extent, not literally, but more of a spiritual relationship. And that is all we'll need. Let's also see here, the Sadducees, like I said earlier, they don't believe uh, in reading and holding up any scripture written after the Pentateuch. So uh, Samuel, Kings, the prophets, what have you, uh, not held up in the same respect as the Pentateuch. Because, you know, the law was contained in the Pentateuch. So, honestly, I see their point in that, oh, this is the most important part because this is where everything else falls back on is this law God has given us. Got it. Love it. Except for the part where they're denying other parts of Scripture. What they also knew is that in later Scriptures, there were verses like Isaiah 26, 19 and Daniel 12, 2 that speak of a resurrection occurring, which they denied. So they refuse to see them as equally scripture as the Pentateuch. So there's an obvious bias built in there. Jesus, knowing this fact, instead uses Exodus, a second book in the Bible, to trip them up as if God, while speaking to Moses in that passage he brings up, is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are currently dead at that moment in time. That if this is true, then he is speaking in the present and future tense, showing that they will be alive again, or if they're already up in glory at some point in time, or however the heck Sheol works, who knows? I'm not the person to go to on that, because uh, there's a lot of metaphysics there that I'm not 100% behind on everything, where scholars will say, well, they were in hell, they, they were in Sheol, they were actually in heaven, who knows? So that's that. The point being that like, he is speaking in the present and future tense, because they will be alive, or they are alive at that moment, rather than if he had just referred to them in the past tense, which would be, well, I, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If there is no resurrection, then that's what God would say. But he didn't. Like, I, I really love this passage because it's one of the greatest, like, most patient setups for a comeback, like, of all time. <laughs> like, uh, God had these things written down by Moses anywhere, depending on who you're going for, like when the Israelites came out of Egypt from around 1400 BC ish, uh, probably a little before sometimes uh, up to 1200 BC ish. And that's a heck of a long time to set up a, a, a comeback to end all comebacks when it comes to this heresy. Yet by quoting one sentence in the entirety of the five books that they memorized and believed, and they knew the moment he said the passage, that was a thing because they memorized it. Jesus destroyed their ability to deny the resurrection because if they did denied what he said there, they're going to have to deny a lot of else of what they also believe. And they simply can't do that. Like to the point where this response from Jesus impresses his other enemies there in the scribes. And they rightly speak of his superior logic with reverence. You know how hard that is for them to do? He has been speaking truth this whole time. And yet it takes a moment like this for people to go, oh, man, Jesus has a point. <laughs> and the people that know better, it's astounding. It breaks your mind. It's like, this is your breaking point? 
Not any of the other stuff he said before. It's maddening. Next up, 41 through 44. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? So uh, for those of you, genealogy isn't really your thing. Let me break down a bit. So Jesus is descended from King David all the way back. We see in 1 Samuel, God promises David he's going to make him a king. He's going to make him, as time goes on in uh, 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles and stuff like that, uh, God is going to raise up from him a son who will be the Messiah to protect the Jewish people and lead them back to him for eternity. So the people rightly saw David as pretty important because guess what? David is pretty dang important. But there was also a smaller heresy there where they saw Jesus sometimes as less than David, as if David was above him. But here we see through David's own words, he refu- uh, uh, refers to Jesus as Lord, which means Jesus is above him. So if he speaks of how he is inferior to the Messiah, he being David, this refutes any idea that Jesus is lesser than the greatest king Israel ever had, who was not Jesus. And David was pr- the greatest king Israel ever had. No questions asked. The man did his job. He screwed up a lot of times. And guess what? He was human. And yet he brought a revival into Israel. He secured their borders. He helped protect them from their many enemies. And he brought them into worship with God, which is the most important factor he ever did. Thus, we see that Jesus is superior to David using David's own words and is to be worshipped as such. 45 through 47. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus spares no sympathy for people who abuse their authority and undermine and destroy the lives of people in need. These very people have no place within the church and should be cast out immediately once their evils are revealed, hopefully so that God can do a mighty work while they are away from the church and they repent. However, even if this doesn't happen, which is what we want to happen, we want them to come back, realize their need for Jesus and repent. Even if it doesn't happen, it is far better to remove them from the church than it is to allow their insipid evil to remain and perhaps embolden others to act in the same way. You add a little bit of mold to bread, Guess what? It's going to continue spreading until all that bread is is mold. And that bread is no longer worth anything to someone trying to eat it. So is the church. Remove the mold, remove the bacteria, the viruses, what have you, from the church, and the church will be a better place for it. It sounds harsh. It sounds bad. But guess what? It needs to be harsh. We cannot allow these people to remain lest they ruin the message and the gospel. And it's teaching the people, lest there are more people who end up in sexual abuse scandals, who end up stealing money from the church, who end up saying, hey, we're going to be doing something with this money. And they do something else with it instead, who preach falsely from the pulpit or where have you get rid of these people. They are worth nothing to the gospel at that moment because They're not doing their jobs. The Pharisees were not doing their jobs. Jesus is going to cut them out, as he rightly should. Look, as we've seen, like, the church over these past 2,000-some years, a little less, 
has had far too many scandals across these 2,000 years-ish because the wrong leaders were allowed to remain in positions of power and authority while all they sought, uh, sought was their own welfare above others. Learn from this and do everything within your power to prevent it from spreading. These people who are being taken advantage of, they have it bad enough. <laughs> if we don't keep our leaders accountable, their life is even worse than it was before because no one's taking care of them. And Jesus despises this. There's a greater condemnation for a leader who proclaims Christ, who proclaims God, who proclaims the Holy Spirit, what have you, and then does not do what they say they're going to do, and in fact makes things worse for the people around them. Well, that's it for Luke 20. Guys, thank you again for listening. Hope you got something you can glean from there. If you have anything further you'd like to ask me, uh, once you can go ahead, you can go to uh, lettingthemoviepodcast.gmail.com to contact me via email. Please, if you have the chance, leave a five-star review just to help us uh, boost the center ratings and to get more people interested uh, to find everything. If you're also interested in my fiction writing, you can find my works at starvingwritersguild.com or on Amazon by searching for the name MC Ashley. Still working on becoming the first uh, you know, uh, choice there, but it's taking a while, but it's all right. Uh, if you'll be, and it's the final time I'll give this message in Matthews, North Carolina on July 15th, I'll be there along with several of my systematic ecology hosts, and we're going to be enjoying a summer fun it's going to be a summer fun slime time event. We'll be having this huge one-day adult VBS kind of extravaganza from 9.30 a.m. to 10 p.m. There you'll be able to see us record some live episodes. Like I'm definitely, like I've mentioned before, I'm leading an episode on demons within fiction. And we'll be having geeky trivia contests. We'll have board games and the like as well that we can play and just hang out and enjoy each other's time. If you're all interested in some further solid studies into the Bible and its teachings, then check out the other members of the Anazal Ministries podcasting network. I'd also like to continue to extend a special thank you to Joshua Knoll for the editing that he does and for the music he provides to the podcast. And with all that in mind, God bless you all in accordance to his will and not mine. And allow me one more time to remind you, let nothing move you.